it's no secret that the Bronx has challenges that its richer neighbors to the north and south do not. It ranks last among New York counties in terms of health outcomes, has some of the poorest school districts and some of the highest air pollution rates. But the Bronx also has people who care about it fiercely, who want its residents to succeed despite the disadvantages and stereotypes of the borough. Welcome to Bronx Connections, Election 2020 Local Lens. I'm Elliot Chaparelli, reporter and anchor at WFUV. That's the NPR affiliate station based on the Rose Hill campus of Fordham University in the Bronx. And this is the final episode in a five-part series covering issues in the 2020 presidential election that will affect the Bronx. It's a joint initiative between WFUV, BronxNet, and Norwood News. Over the past five weeks, we've talked to individuals, city officials, and nonprofits working in the Bronx to improve their community. They're working at the local level to solve many of the issues being talked about on the national level. Two things we have yet to talk about that make a major difference in getting the Bronx and other low-income communities on equal footing are housing and education. Joe Biden also says economic stimulus for small minority-owned businesses is necessary due to the pandemic. But removing the barriers for black and brown entrepreneurs to start and grow businesses is only one of many things we have to do to close the racial wealth gap in this nation. Expanding black and brown home ownership is another. Today, American cities, there are a number, where about 75 percent of white Americans own their homes, only 25 percent of Black and brown citizens or black citizens own their homes. We talked to Jumelia Abrahamson and Jacob Udell from the University Neighborhood Housing Project. They agreed that growing wealth is much harder in the Bronx due to a history of redlining and now predatory lending, but they stressed it's not impossible. So what is UNHP's mission? So UNHP mission is to create, preserve, and improve affordable housing and bring needed resources to the Northwest Bronx. Um, and that's usually housing and financial services. So we offer a range of um, filing taxes, helping people file their tax return. We help people um, search for affordable housing through the New York City Housing Lottery um, portal. Um, and we help residents create a budget um, improve their credit, um, and hopefully build some savings and assets. I do want to let you guys talk specifically about some of the programs at UNHP, um, starting with the financial education program. At the core of our mission um, is to bring resources to the neighborhood as a response to redlining and alternative services. Um, so University Neighborhood Housing Program um, founded the Northwest Bronx Research Center, which is where we offer all of our direct services. Um, and it's really in direct response to the costly services that are available in the neighborhood. So all of our services are free. Um, and we make sure that at the core of all those services, um, financial education is um, at the top of it. So um, we teach financial literacy in a group setting. Um, Pre-COVID, so right now that's all happening virtually, um, either through webinars or through one-on-one -on -one, um, counseling session um, via the phone or through Skype. Um, and what we 
want to make sure that all participants get during those sessions is that they understand um, that no matter how much money they're earning, um, if they fully understand the principle of budgeting, savings, and credit, they would be at the control of their finances and hopefully achieve financial stability, um, which is the long-term result of um, having the proper financial literacy components. What about um, your affordable housing program? How do you help people navigate the New York City housing lottery, which is just notoriously confusing? It's very confusing, especially during COVID time right now. It's even a little bit harder. Um, the website has been reamped. Um, so we are in the process of showing um, our program users how to create this new portal um, and how, um, the, how the information on their profile can really help them secure housing um, through a lottery system. So our work um, is really to walk people through how to create that account, um, how to enter their income um, and household members, and how to see if they qualify for any of the lotteries that are currently available um, on the website. And then how to ungo how to constantly on visit the website to continue to apply um, which is the key to make sure the more lotteries they apply, the better their chances of being invited for an interview. And I'll just add on to that. I think one of the experiences that, um, yeah, Jumelia in the Northwest Bronx Resource Center, um, uh, you know, has, has seen firsthand when it comes to helping people through Housing Connect is just how few units are available to the, to the type of people who are um, our clients, right? The type of people who live in the Northwest Bronx. So a household making in the, you know, twenty-five to forty thousand dollar range annually. That it's just so hard to find to find um, uh, any new apartment that way. Both in terms of um, both because you're in you're in the sea of people in that income range who are then who are who are actually looking for safe and affordable and decent um, uh, housing, and because um, of just how few units like that are actually created through the um, uh, through the affordable housing development pipeline. In terms of availability of units and ability to um, apply for them and get those units in your research pre and post pandemic, what have you seen? Yeah, so right, so in terms of our, I mean, we, um, our research looks at a bunch of different things. I think uh, um, as a baseline, right, um, in terms of things like household income, in terms of things like, you know, rent burden or the amount of income on a monthly basis that's paid toward that, um, which is paid towards rent in terms of overcrowding or the amount of people who live in an apartment on a, on a, on a per room basis, um, eviction rates, all of those things happen, happen um, are, um, are, are, are more dire and happen at higher rates in the Bronx and the Northwest Bronx, right? And so um, uh, that speaks to the, to, yeah, things like the concentration of poverty and um, housing instability, which is, um, which is a fact of life for, for um, yeah, many Bronxites, Bronxites who walk through our door and, and, um, and, um, uh, and the Bronxites that are, you know, are represented by the sort of, you know, borough-wide data. The other part of our research has to do with um, looking um, at building conditions and, you know, physical and financial distress in buildings. So we have um, a long-standing database that's more than a decade old called uh, the, um, you know, Building Indicator Project that, that um, uh, is actually citywide and it tracks every multifamily rental building across New York City. So that's, um, you know, buildings with five or more units and tries to um, identify buildings that might be, 
um, in physical in physical distress or in substandard conditions or in financial distress where an owner isn't um, uh, isn't paying their property taxes or other charges or whatever that is. Um, and that's another example of of things were bad before the you know before the pandemic. It was um, there's lots of distress um, uh, in yeah Bronx rental housing. It's 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 not uncommon to you know to hear from you know some of the clients who walk into into Jamelia's office about just the um, really decrepit conditions that they live in um, uh, uh, in the Bronx and uh, and because of drops in income, which then lead to drops in rent collection and on and on, that's obviously going to have an effect. I want to go back to redlining and um, can you guys define that and talk about how we can see the effects of it in New York City, you know, probably three or four generations later? Redlining by definition is the systemic denial of particular services, usually to a specific area um, that is habited by residents of a particular income and of a minority group. Um, and it's usually for people with low income. Um, and as we see it in the Bronx, um, it's a denial of banking services. So very few bank branches. Um, and as Jacob mentioned earlier, then that has led to the effect of reverse redlining where we get overinvestment, um, but sometimes not the best investment. Um, so when it when we look at banking or insurance rates, um, if we were to compare the map right now of what those services look like for the Bronx, it wouldn't be that much different than what it looked like in Philadelphia for the mortgage loan ban banks that we see um, when we usually think of redlining in 1936. Um, the Bronx is usually the red in many of those um, categories, so health, um, income level, um, distress when it comes to um, rent burden, um, low credit scores, you name it. All those factors are still um, really um, affecting many of the Bronx residents. What access do you want to see to improve all of those things? More housing where people are not paying more than 30% of their income. Um, so if that's coming out of the, the New York City housing lottery, it would have to be um, more units within a particular um, ban. So that would be at least 50% AMI or um, less. Um, and just to give some context to the, the listeners and the viewers, um, household income would not exceed 27,532. So making sure that really the, the household that is being built is affordable for the people that currently live in the Bronx, um, not for people that will be um, pushed out of where they are and come to the Bronx. Um, definitely more, more higher paying jobs and, and stable jobs where people um, will not be let go as soon as a, a, um, the first month of this pandemic. Um, and then um, helping people have the tools, so the products and access and information to be able to like save and, and prepare for financial crisis. It's not a coincidence that all of our work, I think, um, uh, has housing at its root. I think, I think that comes out of 
in insight um, organizationally that 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 housing stability and housing affordability is at the core of all the all the other things that we want um, the ability to have um, uh, um, you know the, the ability to have stable income and the ability to have um, uh, yeah disposable income to, right to do other things besides pay your rent I mean we're um, we're always thinking about housing yeah housing stability and affordability I think now more than ever right when when so much of your life now has to happen in your home um, when 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 kids largely have to take classes on Zoom or when, when certain people are working from home, you know, now more than ever, it's important to have, to have, yeah, like stable, affordable and decent housing. In the ongoing fight for racial and economic equality, President Trump says vouchers and school choice are the solution. Frankly, school choice is the civil rights statement of the year, of the decade, and probably beyond, because all children have to have access to quality education. A child's zip code in America should never determine their future. Rosanna Gulasano is the librarian at one of the poorest schools in New York City. She's had to fight for every book and resource her students have. She even has a donation program for coats and shoes to make sure her kids have all their basic needs met and can focus on learning. She says her school needs more resources. Thanks so much for joining me, Rosanna. Um, so you're the librarian at PS11 in Highbridge. How did you end up there? Well, I was a New York City teaching fellow and they called me from California to teach in New York City. I'd never been to the Bronx before. And I got recruited to PS11. And as soon as I got there, I found a room that was used as a storage room. And I noticed there was bookshelves in the back. And I decided, well, let me possibly do something with this. And the principal at the time said, we want you to be the librarian. Now, I never dreamt, dreamt of being a librarian before. Um, and then a lot of other teachers thought, mm, that's a good job. Let me, you know, I have seniority over me. And um, I went to library school and that sealed the deal. And so I've been 18 years a librarian up until this year. Um, I'm a remote fourth grade, solely remote classroom teacher. So how does remote learning work for the library? There's no library. There's no librarian. Um, I was a sole librarian and they're using, they were using the libraries as uh, temporary isolation rooms, um, safe haven for the children, which I felt was a, a good choice. Um, but it, they are so short of teaching, teachers the whole city. So because I have a teaching credential and anyone who had a teaching credential, they called upon, I was one of them and that's it. I'm, we're lucky to have a job. I feel like fortunate to have a job. What do you think it's, how are you keeping the kids reading despite um, the pandemic? Yeah, good question. Unfortunately, we have to put everything on PDF um, they don't have books. Um, I am doing fundraisers. 
uh, a diversity book fundraiser, which we did get a lot of support. But now I have to figure out how to get the books to the families in a safe way. In a safe way, that's the key. I can get the resources. But now it's up to me to mail them. You know, so you're I'm raising funds for all types of different things to make sure that the children have books. And there's a lot of children that do not have home libraries or enough in their home libraries. So it is not as inspiring for a child to read on the screen as it is in holding their own book. It's it's been a very challenging uh issue so let's talk a little bit more about the storage room that you turned into the library that was that was it library wise for ps11 is that right yeah we did not have a library. we have two buildings although it's one school ps11 the hybrid school in the bronx um it is considered uh the most before the pandemic the poorest congress uh, the poorest con congressional district in the country. That was before COVID. So we had no library. And at that time, I wrote grants and got a lot of support from the grants, um, winning the REACH grant where they actually came in, Target came in and their designers and the children were able to design their own um, library with their own colors and schemes. And it was, uh, the theme was the outdoors. So there's plants, et cetera, bright colors, rainbows, a lot of very encouraging themes, never give up. So we created uh, the main building library and then fortunately went to the annex and have a, a, a library for the K-1 children. So the main building, houses the uh, second through fifth grade and the annex is the actually now it's the pre-k we have a lot of little ones we do puppet shows read alouds constantly two libraries that are connected now they're considered part of the new york city public library system so that the children not this year but up until this year um we're able to borrow books for the first time in the school. You had to build those libraries yourself and get all those grants yourself. That didn't come from the city, right? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Um, absolutely. It was called the REACH grant. I competed in the city, won the library REACH. That was, uh, I think, 2012, um, 2012. And at that time, the REACH grant was $10,000, but certain uh, very influential people found out what I was doing and they kicked it up to 25 grand. Then others, uh, the New York Public Library found out and we, they were able to supply um, the pan, uh, we have Promethean boards. Uh, we were able to get laptops for the first time. These are just some of the things that have come out of the grants. Um, that we were fortunate to win or I was fortunate to win. Rosanna, talk a little bit more about PS11. You said it was the poorest congressional district in the country. Why does why do the kids need the donation program that you run for shoes and coats and such? Yeah, well, what happened was I didn't realize any of this. I, I didn't know any of it as a fact. You know, I came into the school, never had been in the Bronx. And I remember as a new teacher, 
um, I witnessed a two children, two girls um, who are new in the country from Africa, I believe, that got frostbite because they had no, they had sandals on in the winter. And they were, the ambulance came to the school. I was looking out the door of the library. I didn't know what was happening. And later I had heard that that's what happened. And I knew I had to do something. And I reached out um, to uh, my uh, guidance counselor at uh, Pratt where I got my library of science degree. And she told me about uh, New York Cares that did a coat drive which is funny you brought this up because today I found out we're in the bottom of the list of New York Cares, the bottom of the list. You've been trying to get donations to families throughout the pandemic. What's that been like? I'll tell you, um, it was an absolute shock. The first thing we had to do as teachers, right, is we had to reach out to the families just to get the children ready to sign in uh, remotely so that we can give them instructions. So we were all given a list of the, the names and the phone numbers of the students that we were supposed to give instruction to as remote teachers. Uh, this is when the pandemic first hit. Well, as soon as I called the families, the first thing that I noticed was they were, they didn't have food. Uh, many of the families, they had babies without diapers. They had no formula. I mean, the list goes on. Uh, that was the awakening of what the extent was of uh, devastation in these communities. Uh, the community I work in, PS11, I can only speak about that, but that is exactly what happened. Every family I called, there was some issue about uh, food that that was huge, and they didn't know how they were going to get food. At the time, there were very few um, pantries in the high bridge, so I started reaching out to. We have a lot of support from uh, Broadway community. Uh, there's Lynn Pinto; she's a producer on Broadway. Iona Alfonso. We got. Christy Nye, I mean, I can make a list and they all started to, um, at one sandwich at a time, one small girl, <laughs> you know, they all started to, we gathered groceries and we started to bring groceries into the high bridge on a regular basis. We were going in once a week to start with and then once every two weeks. And I have to tell you, when I first hit the high bridge after knowing that the families needed groceries. There was lines around the blocks, lines around the blocks. I'd never seen it. It was like the world ended and the uh, everyone was having big food bags, empty bags and empty carts. So we would go in, we'd pack up um, vans with all types of, you know, basics, basics. And I would find out from the families, I, I made a list and we'd, we kind of developed a pod of families that we knew were the most in need so that we could make sure it was safe. You know, you can't just go in and start bringing food anywhere. Then I had to figure out where to go to meet the families that was safe. 
So we decided the steps of the uh, Highbridge Library, the Highbridge Public Library, because it was closed. And we were meeting there again every week, every two weeks, bringing groceries on a regular basis. Now we're continuing to do that, not as regularly, uh, about every two weeks, every month at Martin Luther King Triangle, because the library is closed. The public library is now open, so we can't use that because we don't have enough to feed everybody. We have our little pod you know, of families that we know on a regular basis that need it. And now we meet at Martin Luther King Triangle. Um, and I'm still doing that. We're feeding the families for uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, those that we can, we wanna do it for everybody, but we have it happening for those that we know need it most. So you said you and other teachers try to send them things. What could the city yes. and the state do to assist you and other teachers right now? You know, the biggest thing that they could do, and this is before and during and every time, there's two issues. Yes, the resources, yes. You know, right now, I think I read recently uh, that our children are getting something like $734 less per head, less per head than uh, other economically um, privileged students that need it less, okay? I mean, I don't know if that's true, but I can tell you that they're not getting anything. Um, so resources, enormous, enormous. We have to beg, borrow, and steal for our resources. Teachers are reaching in their own pocket. One of the things is they cut out our teacher's choice this year. Rosanna, when students have the means and the tools to succeed, what, what happens? What have you seen happen? Um, how have you seen kids transform themselves? Imagine what the family as a unit goes through. You see, it's not only the child that is directly affected. It's that family that has to realize that they cannot do as much as they would love to do to support their children having a better life. That is a crime, you know? So it really is cuts very deep. They have no idea where even to start to get the resources. You, we have children that are reusing the papers, the pencils, the notebooks over and over again. Now, I can't even do that myself, let alone expecting a child to pay attention, and yet they do, yet they do. So um, it, will, it will give them so much more time and show them that they are, they are special. Confidence, give them confidence. Climate change, social justice, health, and immigration all have elements of racial and economic equality. In past episodes, we've talked about environmental racism and the divide in health outcomes, among other topics. Going into the election, no matter where you live or what side of the aisle you stand on, voting is so important. It's the say you can have on all of these issues. 
Thanks to everyone who has made this series happen. Special thanks to this week's guests, Rosanna Gulisano, Jumelia Abrahamson, and Jacob Udell. Thanks also to Sheila Maloney from Norwood News, Louise Roboletto, and Michael Max, and everyone else at BronxNet, and to George Bodarkey and Robin Shannon at WFUV. To read, watch, and listen to more from Bronx Connections, go to norwoodnews.org, wfuv.org, or bronxnet.org. I'm Elliot Schiaparelli. Election day is a week away. Please vote.